I am so proud of you guys. I can't express it. Just day, between daylight savings time and the price of gas, the fact that you came just means a lot, all right? Um, so, uh, quick story. Um, probably, I, I don't want to argue, I know there's some big guys in here, but I think without a doubt, uh, probably in here, Jacob Posey is the strongest male in our church. Like, no... Just bringing that down. Hey, ladies, you can love your man, but Jacob is winning if we're lifting heavy things. And he messaged me, like, a few weeks ago, because sometimes I would go out there, and I didn't lift weights with him. I watched him lift weights, and then I would take some off, and then I would lift, and we just kind of hung out a little bit, lift weights, and just unreasonable. And he, I messaged him just as if he's been lifting or whatever, and he said he got injured deadlifting, and that he was deadlifting and he pulled his back. And so as a typical male, I know females don't communicate this way, so I've got to interpret it. Typical male communication to another male, I say, oh, have you tried rubbing dirt on it? You know what I mean? Maybe, you know, like, take the purse off and maybe it won't hurt as bad, you know, kind of thing. Or, hey, you could just cut your back off and then it wouldn't hurt as bad. And so I kind of gave him a hard time about the fact that he was injured. And probably injured lifting a small Toyota, all right? And so all that being there, and then <clears throat> came into this week. Uh, I know it doesn't look like it, but I try to work out like every so often. I sit at a desk, and so I don't do physical labor all the time. I'm meeting with people and emailing and typing, and I I'd work on sermons. and So it's a lot of sitting, and it's just really unhealthy. So I try to go to the gym and uh, use what God created my body to do to lift things. And so I went into the gym, was deadlifting, after trash-talking him, and I'm telling you, I destroyed my back. In such a way that I did not want to let Jacob know until today. There was like two days. I don't know if you've ever pulled your lower back. Oh, there he is. Um, I wasn't talking about you. Just walk on in. I, uh, I, so yeah. <laughs> it would have been the first time you've paid attention. Um, so, like, just killed my lower back. And I am kind of an anti-chiropractor. It kind of seems like it's voodoo, all right? I don't know that it's actual science. Um, and I would rather go to the dentist because I know that it's going to hurt when that guy goes, all right, put your leg this way, and then he's going to crack your soul, all right, all the way down. So I didn't want to do that, so I sat there for a whole day, like, just like an idiot. Finally, after my wife told me, <clears throat> went to the chiropractor, cracked it, and then it's slowly been getting better ever since. Here's the thing, your lower back, I discovered, is just important for everything. Like, it's not like a pinky, it's not like an elbow, it's like I can work around that. Your lower back is just pivotal for life, movement, every activity you want to do. And if, if something so central is damaged... It just, it, it just is so debilitating. And some of you peop, people that have these types of injuries in key places, you totally get what I'm saying. It's like every time you move, you think about it. And I say that because we're going to come to a part in the text as Jesus enters Jerusalem where he's going to go to the center of their lives and say something is sick. Something is, is damaged. 
And it's damaged in such a way that everything else you do is affected by it. And until we address it, we can't address anything else. And so, um, let's just get into it. Uh, And let's ask the Lord to help us as we kind of dive into the text today. Would you assume a posture of prayer as we just ask for God to be the teacher here? Dear Heavenly Father, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All rulers of the earth are, as the Psalms say, water in your hands and you move their hearts however you please. And so we are not unsettled by gas prices or Ukraine because in the scope of eternity, these are nothing to your sovereign ruling. God, we come now beseeching to give us a vision of what is central so that we might address that which is secondary and peripheral. God, would you come to the very core of each person gathered here today And would you address their hearts? And if there's something achy there, if there's pain there, if there's something unhealthy there, God, would you come and cleanse? Would you do violence to our sin? That we might be whole, and that we might worship, and that we might pray. God, we ask that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said... Amen. Mark chapter 11, uh, just a little bit of a jog as we get into Mark 11. Um, This is Passover week, which is incredibly central um, to the community of faith um, beliefs and process and calendar. Passover is one of the three obligatory feasts that everybody from all over the world would have to come back to. We talked about Jesus is now entering at the time at which lambs were selected from Bethlehem as they come into the city. And the Gospels, according to this week, are going to play a disproportionate amount of attention to this week. And I talked about this last week. The Gospel writers, the Gospel of John, nearly half of John is dedicated to this week. Two-fifths of Matthew is dedicated to this week. Three-fifths of Mark is dedicated to this week. A third of Luke is dedicated to this week. So we said this. If you look at just volume... The gospel writers are going to take the last week of Jesus' life and say, don't miss this. And I would argue that's because of what the role of the cross and the resurrection plays in redemptive history. That if you miss the cross, but you get some of his teaching about money, you're you're still damned. And so we've got to get this cross. We've got to get this resurrection we got to get that he's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world and that the cross is central. Are you tracking with that? Right? Come on now. One or two of you is Baptists. You should like the, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. I started singing that this morning and then realized this ain't the song I thought it was. <clears throat> so, like, this is... But then we got to the story, and I kind of read it like a pagan. Like, I just read this story about Jesus coming on a donkey and cloaks going, throwing down, and... Some sort of like, it's some sort of boosting of a, of a donkey, right? And my theory was it was Judas, because he's a thief, and Levi the tax collector, because collecting taxes is also thievery. So I figured he probably sent those two to get, but instead what, what happened was, is Jesus not just coming in humbly on a donkey, which I equated to coming into Jerusalem on a Prius, but that the cloaks went back to this thing about kingship 
The donkey went back to this thing about kingship. The timing went back to a prophetic vision. And if you missed that teaching, you should be able to get that online. And here's what the thing was. Each of these, what seems like obscure detail, is a perfect puzzle piece that fits into something that's missing in the puzzle of the Old Testament. There is no detail of the triumphal entry that does not fit. And so while it looks curious to us, it makes all the biblical sense in the world what Jesus is communicating to those that are looking on from the outside. And so... We kind of ended with this idea that when you buy a puzzle and you see what the thing is on the outside and you see the puzzle pieces and you flip them over, it looks like a big pile of chaos and hard work. But you trust the puzzle maker to make sure that every piece of the puzzle fits. Amen? And I just said, do not trust a toy maker more than you trust the sovereign God of the universe who has every piece of your life fit. And, and maybe this is for us as we begin this journey with Jesus into Jerusalem. Has Jesus made a triumphal entry into your life? Not as a guru, but as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Has He made a triumphal entry into your life? And that's kind of where we left it last week. Then... Um, we get into uh, verse 12 here on the following day. So if you've got a Bible, uh, look at it. It'll be really helpful. Um, we're very serious about the Bible here. And so it's going to be the main thing. 12. On the following day. Pause. We've kind of talked about last time. It was a bit anticlimactic. He does this huge entry. Then it says he kind of goes in and scopes out the place. He cases the joint. Then he just kind of went home. Like... It's kind of up and down. It's kind of like our prayer song time. It kind of goes up and then kind of anticlimactic there for a minute. So he backs back out. The following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Now we're going to know he's about to do some some UFC stuff down in the temple. So he's going to need the cardio. He's got to have a big day ahead. So he's got to have a big break. He's hungry, coming into town. And for us, if you've got a big day ahead, you know, like with our kids, we might give them... Oatmeal, pancakes, right? Your ancestors used to eat biscuits and gravy and then go out and like haul hay all day. You eat biscuits and gravy and tippy-tap on the computer. I don't know why there's an obesity problem. It's like we just carb-loaded for a marathon. We're not running, all right? And so you used to like pack on the weight because you would have to go out and work. So he's got a big day ahead of him. He's hungry. By the way, we see... In this passage, the full humanity of Jesus. In order to save humanity, he had to adopt the full humanity that had fallen in order to redeem that which has fallen. We also see the full divinity in his fulfillment of prophecy. He was hungry. Verse 13, and seeing in the distance. So he noted it. A fig tree in leaf. It has leaves. He went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, so he bare grills, hikes up to wherever it is. When he came to it, he found nothing. Like, he found nothing. Nothing believes. Now, 
before it was not the season for figs. Curious? And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his, note this, his disciples heard it. And they're going to remember it in this passage. Jesus is intentionally doing something with this fig tree that he wants them to observe. He wants them to hear it. Then, the next thing that we get is Jesus cleansing the temple. And they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought. Both the supply and the demand is getting the treatment that bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because of all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. But as our founding fathers of this country understood, a mob is a tricky thing. Here today, gone tomorrow. Easily flipped. Verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. Next day, verse 20, look at the text. And as they passed in the morning, next day, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. That's, that's critical. Withered. Not, not, not accidental language here. Withered to the roots. And Peter remembered, that's kind of a small miracle right there, am I right? Said to him, <laughs> I joke about that, but like, if I text some of you tomorrow what some of this sermon was about, y'all want that text? Right? Let me wait till Wednesday and then shoot it to you. All right? I digress. Peter remembered and said to them, I don't know what I ate yesterday. Um, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you, this is where we get the word cursed, cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God, which is a strange thing to say. But then we get into this thing about prayer that we'll probably have to get to next week. Have faith in God. He cursed the fig tree. Now, if you've been with us throughout the Mark series, um, which, by the way, um, we've started over. On, if you're listening on Passion Radio, we started the sermons on at like 9 o'clock Saturday. It's starting over in Mark chapter 1, so if you've missed some of them, they'll be there. But if you've been with us for a minute, you will notice this is something that Mark has done before. It's a Markin sandwich, right? You remember where he's done this before? Well, he'll have something in the middle, but he'll like bracket it with a, another story. And it's to make a point. These are interconnected. They're, they're meant to help interpret one another. Y'all remember this? If I have to say that it's a sandwich, maybe it's, it's, a, fig, it's a fig sandwich. And the, the, the gooey, delicious center is the destruction of God's temple. Right? That's, that, that didn't play. Okay, so it's a, it's a sandwich of Mark, and he's bracketing it. He's bracketing. So um, if you got the slide up there, Ty, and want to pull that up, here's what is going on. He sees at a distance leaves, which should give him encouragement that there's fruit. But all the outward display, listen to me, all the outward display caused expectation, but close inspection rendered the Lord disappointed. A lot of outward, but close inspection, disappointment. 
Disappointment. Um, and he curses it. This is the only destructive miracle in all of the Gospel of Mark. And intentionally meant to be heard, saw, witnessed by the disciples. Peter remembers it. Now, this is probably a troublesome theology for our Durango tree huggers because they're like, did Jesus just lumberjack this tree and destroy one of these trees that we love so much? Why is Jesus so big mad about this tree? What did this tree do? And doesn't it even seem in some ways uh, like it's not exactly the full season, so it's like, is he irrational to even curse this tree? So let's look at these trees just a little bit, and I think I can, I can give um, maybe some clues to what Jesus is doing with the fig tree. Um, this is a fig tree. First note, I would say, is they are much bigger than what I expected them. For whatever reason, in my mind, I thought fig shrub. Anybody? Like if that baby would have been two foot tall, would anybody here have been surprised? In the, in the Bible, they, are tw- they can get around 20 foot tall by 20 foot wide. It is the national symbol of Israel. That's not accidental. Okay? Um, go to the next one. In the Bible, they're mentioned kind of frequently in Numbers chapter 13. As the children of Israelite, the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, they go to spy out the land. One of the details in the, the book of Numbers is that the spy says that the, the land is full of fig trees. And that is a description to say that the, the land is basically good because it's got tons of figs. By the way, shout out to, um, I have a friend in Israel who, you know, came here for my wedding and the birth of uh, my son. He is actually a fit, he, he farms figs in Israel. And, um, and they usually don't let them grow as wild as this. But uh, the, look how big this, uh, this is a, a breed of that. And some of the figs that are on the tree there. Um, this is a sycamore fig, which would have probably been closer to what... Um, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Am I right? Um, You can go to the next one. Um, In Hosea 9, it describes that even before the full season, uh, the full season is usually in August, the first season for figs is actually March, April, right around now. Right now in March, April, there's these little nubs that come out, and they don't form full figs like this. They're um, yanim. They're like a staging area for the fig to come out of. So what would happen first is you would, you would have lit leaves, then you would have this small nub that was a staging area, and that was edible. Kind of think of this as the chips and salsa of the fig tree. So Jesus rolls up, and he sees, comes to a Mexican restaurant, and they're like, hey, we're just smooth out of chips and salsa. It's like, take the word Mexican off of the name of this restaurant. What are you guys even doing back there? Take some tortillas and fry them. It's not complicated. Right? So... There's these nubs that they would come to. And we learn a little bit about that in Hosea chapter 9. Um, being from Oklahoma, I grew up near Lake Texoma. It's all sandy uh, kind of roads and streets and stuff. It's like a silty thing. And we had these wild grapes. And it's like anybody could go down the street and pluck wild grapes. And we used to eat them as a kid. Or uh, I don't know if you have these here in Colorado, but we used to have honeysuckles. And you would take honeysuckles off the tree. And it was just kind of like a pleasant snack and it tastes good. And, and you would... Try to fight off bees because bees also liked them at the time. All right. And so this is more of what a full fig uh, would look like. These things, Deuteronomy chapter 8, are everywhere throughout the Holy Land. Such that it became a part of the national symbol. Uh, you can go to the next one. In, in the Gospels, 
when Jesus it has an account of Nathaniel being found underneath a fig tree, which should have given me the clue that it's not two foot tall, but I didn't put all that together until I started studying for this. So these are what the figs would look like, and then they eventually wrap them in a delicious cookie and sell them to Americans. Um, okay, you can go to the next one. So, we need a little bit of, of help, right? Like, just to kind of get this. So we have this, this tree that is there that produces leaves, then a nub, and then, and then like the full fruit, right? And it comes out. And the staging area on the tree that Jesus come to didn't exist. It was just all leaves. All foliage. No fruit. Nothing. It says Jesus found nothing. Nothing. Nothing but lying leaves. It's interesting. I thought about this this week about Adam and Eve covering themselves with fig leaves. This, this whole idea has an Old Testament precedent that I think is central for us. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 through 14. There, God is bringing through the prophet judgment on his people, and particularly the temple, because of their unrepentant, heart, unrepentant hearts towards sin. Were they ashamed that they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. It's basically like our culture. It's like we sin, and then we try to figure out a way to justify it and make it the cool thing. There's no blushing about sin. Therefore, they shall fall upon the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When, look at verse 13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there were no grapes on the vine, no figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Why do you sit still? Gather together. Let us go into the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and given us poison water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. This is a story. This is a prophetic warning against unrepentance. And it's talking about Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be raised. And the way in which he describes his interaction with them, it's like I'm a, I'm a farmer coming to my figs to find fruit, and I found no figs. I found no figs. Okay, go to the next uh, passage. This, this story should sound familiar um, for some of you that have any time in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 6. Let me sing for my beloved my song my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower. Some theologians would describe that watchtower as the temple. In the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Colorado people, this is the person that moved to Colorado to homestead, but didn't realize that all of the soil is rock here, all right? And they made a brewery. It makes all kinds of sense. Um, 
Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of, Colorado, uh, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up and I will also command the cloud that that they rain no rain upon it. So there's a story about a guy who has land and he plants a homestead and he, he digs, he fertilizes and he builds a watchtower and basically it does not produce the fruit that he wants from it. Everybody tracking with that so far in the story? Go to the next one. Luke chapter 13, this is Jesus now talking. And I think this is going to be a Rosetta Stone for help us understand and decipher what's going on in this passage. Verse 6. And he told this parable, speaking of Jesus. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Figs, huh? And he came seeking fruit on it. And he found... What's it say? None. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, these... Three years. By the way, unbelievably curious why Jesus' public ministry was roughly three years. He came, and then he says, look, these three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? For some of us that are not involved in agriculture, we don't understand this. But why have a tree that's taking up all of the soil and the natural resources that's producing no fruit. I could use that ground for something else. I could plant something else there. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also. And I dig around it and put on manure. It's fertilizer. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Lots of people believe this is the year before this parable happened the year before the parable of or Jesus cursing the fig tree and entering into the temple. Now, this gets us into a whole other question about the temple. Because he enters into the temple, right? Now, <clears throat> let's, let's just jog a little bit about the temple, and I may address it more, more in detail next week. A little bit about the temple. The first temple really was Eden. The Garden of Eden was itself a sanctuary where God and man met. It was holy. It was a place of relationship. It was a place of work and worship and co-laboring together. Because of the sin and rebellion of Adam and Eve, they are barred from there. And the Bible literally says that there's a flaming sword that keeps them from re-accessing Eden and living forever in their fallen state. Which in one way is a mercy of God. And in another way, the flaming sword is saying, nobody's getting in here without blood. Then, what we learn about the next thing about the temple is, Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain, where Isaac carried his own wood for his own sacrifice, up to a mountain. 
And when he got up there, Abraham didn't sacrifice Isaac, but a ram in the thicket was provided as a substitute on Mount Moriah. The temple is built on that mountain. But they didn't get it during the time of Abraham and Isaac. David came and bought it. Then Solomon built it because David was a man of blood and God wouldn't let let him build it. He had his son Solomon build the temple. Then the second most important thing in all of um, God's people in the Old Testament happened, and it's the exile. Our worship in the Old Testament between the, the exodus and the original Passover and the exile became fake worship. All leaves... No fruit. We said we were God's people and we did wickedness. And because of it, God raised up Babylon, which we talked about in the previous prophecy on the screen, to come and judge. God raised them up to come and judge us for our fake, false worship. And the temple was destroyed. The temple was later rebuilt But it wasn't rebuilt to its former glory. It was kind of like the equate version. Right? Like you ordered it and it looked too too good to be true off the internet. It came from China. And you're like, that is definitely not brand name. Right? So they rebuilt the temple. Then the temple, um, you know, it had to be cleansed because Antiquitous Epiphanies, this is intertestamental stuff that happens, takes the temple, slaughters a pig, desecrates it, which is called the abomination of desecration, And it had to be cleansed again, and then the Jews started a whole festival about that cleansing. In 70 AD, about a generation exactly after Jesus does this prophecy that we're studying today, 40 years, a generation happens, and the temple is raised to the ground by a Roman general. 70 AD, it's going to be destroyed. This is the temple that Jesus is walking into. Now... When you walk into the temple from the east, and we said that he's coming from the east in accordance to Ezekiel, that the glory of God would come down Mount of Olives from the east. He's staying in Bethany and Bethphage, and he's coming from that direction. When you come in from the east, the court that you enter is the court of Gentiles. The court of Gentiles. And the court of Gentiles, Jesus would describe in this passage, he's going to quote from the Old Testament, when the Old Testament says, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations. You know the missions is in the Old Testament, right? I keep saying that um, because I think there's some wrong thinking dispensationalism that gets into that there's not Gentiles saved in the Old Testament. There clearly are. The, 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 the Gentiles were meant to come to the temple and pray. Look at this next passage, First Kings. It's, it's, it's staggering. Solomon is dedicating the first temple and he prays. Likewise, praying to God. When a foreigner, a Gentile, a Goyim, an ethne, someone from another nation, who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake. For they shall hear of your great name. How are they going to hear about their great name? Oh, people are going out and telling people about God's great name. That's weird. In the time of Solomon. In your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. That's another language for Jesus. When he comes and prays to this house. When the Gentile comes and prays toward this house. 
This is the same kind of language of, in the book of Daniel, Daniel the prophet prays towards the temple. By the way, Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days I raise it up. There is one mediator between God and man, the temple. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. When you pray towards the temple, why? Because it is an anticipation of praying to God in the direction of Jesus. Does that make sense? It's unbelievable. So when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all that which the foreigner calls on you. In order, he's basically saying, answer that dude's prayer. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. It's all about your glory, God, so answer prayer. Right? And that's exactly what he gets down into moving mountains in the prayer passage. It exactly follows this. So here's the idea. The Gentiles were meant to come to a place, and there's a court that existed for the Gentiles. It was 500 by 350 yards wide. I know none of you know like the metric system, so this wouldn't help. It's like five football fields by like three and a half more football fields. It's massive. Um, Isaac's skipping today, but my default would be, it's like, um, it's like 35 acres large is the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was one of four courts that surrounded the temple. 35 acres large. And they would come there, and the idea was that they could pray towards the temple. So here's the thing. Like, say you're a believer in, like, 100 B.C., okay? You're a believer. You believe the covenants of God. You're a Jew. You work in Rome. You know, I don't know what you sell. Computer parts or whatever they sold back then. Okay? You sell things, and you work in Rome, and you have business partners that are pagans. They're Phoenicians, right? They're those heathens, the French, and you decide, hey, we got business down in Israel. Why don't you come back with me to Passover and come check out what my faith is all about? So you would take them. He's taking them to church. You take them to church into the court of Gentiles where they would see the temple. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. They couldn't go into the inner court. But they could see the worship. They could come to Resurrection Fest and see people celebrating and making a big deal about God and His name. They they might, by faith and by grace, be, be led to pray. And if they prayed, as Solomon hoped that they would, God might answer that. And like Nahum and like Rahab and so many Gentiles in the Old Testament, they could be saved by faith. Right? And so you bring them with you. Now here's what was the problem. Why is Jesus then rolling into this space tripping? I mean, verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those that sold and those that bought in the temple. That right there is a problem. And overturned changers of money and seats of those who sold pigeons. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. See, the thing about the court of the Gentiles was from the direction of the Mount of Olives, 
it was a shortcut to the inner part of the city. People started using it as a thoroughfare. It's like they would cut through there. Furthermore, there began this system of evil by the Levites. The priests began to say, okay, this is a feast that all God's people from all over the world have to come to. You're going to walk 400 miles with a lamb? Dude, I ain't trying to walk from Vallecito to Bayfield with a lamb. You'd have to walk it all the way there? What happens if it gets injured? Well, now you can't worship at Passover. What if, and by the way, the Levites are the one inspecting it. What if the Levites inspect the lamb and say it's unworthy? You got to buy one anyways, and now you got to walk that dude all the way home. So people coming from all over the world to worship at Passover, the Levites understood. They went in and made kind of a, a mafia insider trading business racket thing. Where And I, again, I talked about this last week. Josephus, a non-biblical um, source, says at Passover week in 40 AD, there was 260,000 lambs. Two to three million people is how some people figure that. 260,000 lambs. Well, they're providing them. But they're providing them at that Disney cruise cost. You know what I'm saying? You've been to a concert and tried to buy food? It's made out of gold. A funnel cake at the fair. You've got to auction one of your children. Right? What did they do? What are they doing? They're coming into the temple, understood that these people needed these salt, wine, bread, pigeons, lamps. They needed all this stuff to worship, and they gouged the prices. Ten times the price. That didn't stop there. Furthermore, where were they buying and selling them? They didn't put it in the Holy of Holies. Well, we got this big open space called the Court of Gentiles. Booths, shops. It's the New York Stock Exchange full trade down there. And that's where someone's supposed to seek God. That's where someone's supposed to pray. In the midst of all the hustle and bustle. Even more than that, they had a Tyrian um, coin... So people from all over the world couldn't use their currency. They had money changers, which is described here. They had their own temple coin that you had to pay in. So first thing, you would have to give me whatever kind of coins you're using, and I would trade you for this temple coin that's not exactly like a shekel, and I would, like at an airport, charge exorbitant amounts of money for you to even get my kind of money that's the only money that will buy these types of things. Have you ever been to an arcade? And in the arcade, they have like special coins that I don't, I guess Chuck E. Cheese is out there minting themselves. And what they do is they charge you for those coins because if you don't use all of them, you can't go down to Costco and spend those. They've got a corner on the market. And so they're making money off the exchanging of money because they invented their own temple currency. It's a frequent flyer mile that only works for them. And they kind of pigeonhole you. The Gentiles are coming in. Many are trying to maybe seek God. Maybe pray towards God. And 
can we agree that at the very least they got the cheap seats? They got the less than optimal treatment. Now listen, there's nothing wrong. And we should see this. In the Bible, it's going to affirm. There's nothing wrong with making a profit. Like if you have a business and it's legitimate and you're making something or producing something or providing a service that serves people, it's 100% appropriate to make a profit. The issue is they're making a profit off of people's worship and limiting people's ability to have a relationship with God. It's when, the, it's when the church becomes some sort of big business. This is for us, like, I, just be 100%. This, we're a non-profit. And what that non means is, is we just don't, all right? <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Um, and I think that, I joke about this all the time, it's like, for a church, particularly like a minister, to get incredibly wealthy, you have to do it the wrong way. You have to do it the wrong way. And this is why... Um, they had an interview with Rick Warren. Rick Warren's pastor of a big church. I'm not against big churches, not against small churches. I'm for faithful churches, whatever the size is. Rick Warren wrote a book called Purpose Driven Life. And he had this book, and it was really popular, sold lots of copies. Came on CNN, and CNN like interviewed him. First question right out the gate. It's like, your book, best, New York Times bestseller, sold so many copies. You're a pastor. What'd you do with the money? What'd you do with the money? And Rick, no questions asked, right back and said, I'm so glad you asked that. First thing I did is I paid my church back for 30 years of salary. Which, by the way, church, I'm sorry, I'm not that good a writer, all right? (laughs) And the rest I gave away to missions. And the reason I did that is so that you could ask me that question. Right, But in a time where we have people fleecing the people of God for private jets and this thing and that thing, I just want to say, it's like the same demonic activity that was happening there is happening in our culture. And it's one reason why I've not um, ever shied away in this pulpit to say that I hate the prosperity gospel which substitutes what God has done to save men from their sin. They substitute that beautiful, eternal message with materialism and greed. And it's not far from what's been here before. I mean, so... Jesus comes to the temple... And he's outraged. He's upset. This is a fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, 1 through 3, where Jesus would come as a refining fire and as a cleansing soap, which I've always thought is really interesting language. It has to be that lava soap. You know what lava soap is? It's got sandpaper built into it so it can rip the flesh right off of you. What a great picture of Jesus, right? Um, and it says, Psalm 69, 9, says, zeal from your house has consumed me. And the reproach that they put on you has fallen on me. That a part of Jesus' fulfillment of Psalm 69 is that he was just consumed for the glory of God. And what he saw made him angry. 
I've taught about righteous anger. Those sermons are online. I can't deal with all of that here. But one thing I will say is that righteous anger has its place. If you never get angry, there's something wrong with you. If you never look at injustice or evil and it doesn't fire you up, there is something broken in you. Church, we are not pacifists. Jesus Jesus is not a Buddhist. He's not limp-wristed. He's not weak. And he ain't going to put up with it. Jesus, I would argue right here, uses force. He flips the money tables over. See, now I feel the uncomfortableness, don't you? You realize in Revelation, he comes back on a war horse to to judge and slaughter the wicked. That's Revelation, that's Bible, that's New Testament. Those that have rejected the olive branch of the cross, the peace that he comes and offers us in the gospel to be reconciled with God, when we spit in the face of that, say we want nothing to do with that, there is judgment coming and Johnny Cash is playing in the background. Like, I don't know why we come to a passage like this except for that we have accepted a weak, worldly version of Jesus that is just not biblical. He flipped the t- He gets angry because he loves something. He loves the glory of God. He loves people. He loves the Gentiles seeking him. Maybe even a few of you here. He loves that. And so he hates the commercialism. He hates the greed. He hates the materialism. He hates all the stuff that has cluttered up evangelism. Do you see it? Jesus is an advocate for missions. And he stands in the gap for Gentiles. Like them. Like you. And so he gets angry at sin. And he goes full linebacker. I mean, this dude is Brian Erlacking. You can't come from there to here. Nobody's cutting through this dude. Right? He he says he drove them. Does he put them on like a football sled and move them out? Here's maybe the point. Jesus comes to the heart of the people, which is Jerusalem. And more specifically, the heart of the people is the temple. And he finds materialism, merchandising, commercials, greed, exploitation, and idolatry. They got faith in the bank and they got money in their heart. It's the same thing that we've seen in some churches where they will have a dedicated prayer room that is full all the time. we got a prayer meeting Tuesday night. Come worship with us. Come pray with us. We don't have a dedicated prayer meeting, but I've seen this in churches. They have a dedicated prayer space in the church where people can come and pray. And you know what that most often turns into? Storage closet. And Jesus, it's just... He's not having it. He's not having it. Church, do you know that the point of Christianity is not to make you nice? It's to make you holy. 
point of Christianity is not to make you nice. That's a moving target that our culture will never let us hit. Do you know that yet? It's not to make you nice. It's to make you holy. Jesus isn't placid. Jesus has zeal. Jesus loves. And Jesus hates the sin. And so he drives it out. So, a house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is ensuring that it will be so. Here's the main question. This is where I want to end. And I, you know, I don't know how much you're paying attention right now. I don't know how much you're locked in. But if there's one question that maybe we can let hit us, and if I text you about on Wednesday what this is all about, I want you to be able to, to interact with me about this question. Is this story in any sense describing me? Is there anything about the fig tree that describes my life? All leaf, no fruit. Fig leaves to cover, a lot of pageantry, a lot of busyness, no fruit. Is my spiritual life withered from its roots? If the king comes to the center of my life, will he find fruit? See, the story of the fig tree is the story of the temple. And the story of the temple is the story of the heart of God's people. Cluttered, full of leaves, fruitless. Let me pray for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to say Jesus' words over you. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, it is he who will bear much fruit. Fruitfulness comes from one source, one root, one place. The living water, the vine, that is Jesus. Are you anchored to Him? Are you abiding in Him? Dear Heavenly Father, we enter Your courts with thanksgiving and Your presence with praise. Lord, teach us to abide that to Your glory we might bear much fruit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Everybody said.